We will be in Ruth 4. We're going to do the whole chapter today. Uh, we'll do the whole chapter today, and, uh, and we're going to be looking at this idea of, uh, of the redemptive invitation of God, the redemptive invitation of God. We've been looking at this idea of Redeemer throughout the book of Ruth. We've been uh, looking at a bigger idea in the book of Ruth, not just redemption, but God's love. Uh, his redeeming is one part of that, of, uh, of that expression of love. And so uh, I wanted to start here with this idea of delighting and devotion. Um, I had a, uh, when I was a kid, there was, there was, there was a lot of stuff uh, that I got really excited about. If you've heard me preach, you know I'm very excitable, and, uh, and, uh, and I get really pumped up about some of this stuff. But when I get an idea, my wife knows this, when I get an idea and I'm really passionate about something, I go like all in, like 110%. Not possible, but I go 110%. And I'm all the way in. And then like two weeks later, I'm like, all right, and I'm all the way out. And uh, so we end up getting like all these, you know, the big, maybe you like this, maybe you know someone like this. Uh, it's, it's a burden to your family. I'm just telling you, you're a burden to your family if you're this way. Uh, but you get like the sweet, the latest, the newest, the greatest thing, and then it's like sits there and gathers dust because you really wanted to get into it, right? You delighted in it. The, the idea of it was great. The, there's, this, there's this wonderful joy that comes from this. However, when it comes time for the, for the newness and the novelty to wear off, there's this devotion that needs to happen, right? And we don't balance that idea of delight and devotion very well. And so oftentimes, the newest, greatest thing is great, it's wonderful. We want to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to make, we're actually clear ridiculous amounts of times in our, in our calendars to devote ourselves to this for a time. But when the real devotion happens, then it kind of goes away. Maybe if you've had, have you been a teenager, you have teenagers and you're starting this idea of dating, uh, just enormous amounts of time going to these long conversations about absolutely nothing. And there's a ton of delight in that. That was three hours. We just talked about a movie for three hours. It was great. We should have just watched it, right? Uh, but there's no devotion because, because after that novelty wears off, then you're like, ah, what is, what is the point of this? Because this is, this is inconvenient. We don't, we don't handle that too well. Well, one of the things that Ruth shows us is this incredible amount of delight, this incredible amount of devotion that is pocketed under the term love. In America uh, today, we don't understand love so well. Uh, it, it's more a feeling than it is a commitment. And so we delight out of the feeling but when it comes time to devotion, we don't really commit ourselves to whatever it is, whoever it is or whatever it is. We don't do that with our products. We don't do that with our clothing. We don't do that with our cars. We don't do that with our relationships. We just uh, love them until we're not in love with them anymore, and then we ditch because we don't quite understand what loving devotion is. Ruth is a wonderful, beautiful, powerful, uh, scandalous uh, ex- example uh, of that idea of God's chesed love, his undying, never-ending, steadfast, loyal love. And it draws us into this idea of delight and devotion. So uh, as we have this delight and devotion, there's also another element that's there. There's this, this receiving and extending God's love. Uh, so we receive his love, but we also then have to, uh, just by, by nature of, of how much joy and abundance there is, we push it off to others. That's the natural trajectory of God's love to us. We're going to see that in Ruth 4 today. We're going to see that in, uh, in Ruth 4 today. And the idea that we're going to be going for uh, as we balance all of these ideas is, uh, is that we are going to, uh, I'm going to push you towards extending the, uh, the, the redemptive invitation of God. 
Extend God's redemptive invitation. There's redemption in his love. There's invitation in his love. We're going to see this. Uh, I made this kind of a fuzzy uh, phrase here because I want to flesh out what this means as we go through the text. This is narrative. And so narrative develops itself in scenes. We have three scenes today. Uh, It is uh, that Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, they show that love knows its limits, that love knows its cost, and that love ultimately knows its fulfillment. So I'll have you out of reverence for God's word. We're going to stand up as we read the, uh, the first few verses to set us up uh, for, for today's text. This will be all of Ruth 4, but I'm only going to read the first uh, maybe five or six uh, verses here. Starting actually back in chapter 3, verse 18. Then Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man, Boaz, will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And then he took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought that I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders, my people, uh, the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, uh, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, "Uh, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. And then we'll skip ahead to verse 8. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses to this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, this is your church. God, these are your people. God, this is your message. By the Spirit, I pray that you would guide us into all truth of your steadfast, loyal love. That we, be, uh, that we receive it humbly and extend it abundantly. In your name, amen. So this first scene, love knows its limits. Uh, Boaz, he's pretty, uh, he seems pretty ruthless here. Uh, it seems like he's almost like holding all of his cards, right? He doesn't, uh, he doesn't, doesn't lay them all out for the, uh, for the, for the uh, Redeemer to, uh, to see. Well, uh, something that's amazing that happens here is that Boaz has this, this prudence, has this, this desire, he has this knowledge, and we've talked about this a bunch, that Boaz is not, you know, we're not supposed to read Boaz and say, oh, this is Jesus Christ. Like, that, that flattens who Boaz is. Boaz does things very similar to Jesus Christ because he understands the love of God the same way as Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? If we understand 
God's love, his has said never ending steadfast loyal love to us. If we understand that the same way, then kind of the thrust of this whole series has been that God's has said love is the behavioral norm for you and I. That we'll just do the things that Boaz does. We'll just do the things that Ruth does. And we'll do them with delight, but we'll also do them with devotion. Boaz is showing us here an incredible amount of delight. He wants to marry Ruth. He, he, he's, he's thrilled with it. She's a worthy woman. She has a great reputation. This is going to go well. But he also has this incredible devotion. Naomi says he's not going to rest until he finds rest for you. And so he gets to work. And we read that he goes and sits at the city gate. So not what I thought, which lets me know that uh, ancient Near East culture was a bit different than ours. Because I would think that if he's going to go get to work, he's going to go to the courthouse, right? But no, he goes and just like camps out by the gate. Okay, cool. Now we're just like watching people drive by, right? Um, The gate back in the day, it was essentially the courthouse. I mean, not exactly, but that's where the business happened. That's where these kind of things happen. That's where the elders are hanging out at the gate. And so it says here that Boaz uh, had gone up to the gate and sat there. So I love this part. It's literature. Let's read this uh, with the sarcasm that, that the author had woven into this. And then what happens? He sets up shop. And what does he need? What does he need to do this? He's going to go and try and find this redeemer guy, right? So what needs to happen is this guy needs to walk by, right? And then let's read along here in uh, the second half of verse one. And behold, the redeemer. Well, go, go figure. There he comes. This is the third time we've seen the word behold in the book of Ruth. I mean, by this point, I'm seeing some smiles. You're, you're getting this. We should, we should smile and laugh at this because this is irony. What happens is uh, the first time we, we hear of Boaz, uh, we, have, uh, we have this idea that uh, Ruth, she happens, she by chance, just randomly happens to land in the exact field of the guy who is a kinsman redeemer. Go figure. The thing she needs, by chance, she lands here. Oh, his name's Boaz, and so she's working, and behold, Boaz. Well, that's not so chance. And then, and then later on, we need this, this exchange. We need this woman to come before uh, the Redeemer and ask for this redemption. And we read in, uh, in Ruth 2, behold, there are, sorry, in Ruth 3, behold, there's Ruth. So behold, by chance, not so randomly, we have the guy who can redeem. Behold, by chance, We have not so randomly the situation where the woman who needs redeemed is sitting at the feet of the man who can redeem. And now the man who can redeem says there's someone that's even closer than you that can do this and we need him. So by chance, all of these things have been lining up and then all of a sudden, behold, that guy walks through the gate. Well, go figure. If by this point we should be understanding that there's an incredible amount of God's providence guiding this story even though people are making independent decisions themselves. It's a tension that we live with as Christians. Boaz and Ruth and this man are all making decisions for their days, but somehow God is providentially, by chance, not so by chance, moving them to this wonderful story of redemption. And the guy shows up. So Boaz, he just naturally says, hey, Sit down, let's talk. And the guy sits down and talk. And then he says, hey, everybody here, we need to make this a legal transaction. So why don't y'all sit down? And then they go and sit down. God still providentially works this day. If you feel like you've been been dropped off by God, if you feel like you've been neglected by God, if you feel like God doesn't really care about what's going on in your life right now, uh, you're wrong. Ruth is going to show us, or Naomi is going to show us this very clearly at the end of today, uh, of today's text. God is working providentially. 
So he sees this guy who, who, the, who the Hebrew like literally translates, his name's Mr. So-and-so. So this guy walks along, Mr. So-and-so, the Redeemer, and he tells, uh, and Boaz says, let's sit down and let's talk. So here, verse 3 and 4, we've got the plan. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one to redeem it but me. But I can do that. See, Boaz delights in this idea of marrying her, of redeeming her. He sees that God's will is for her to be redeemed, and he can do that, and he wants to jump on board. He's delighting in this. But he knows his limits. He knows that he may not be the voice to do this. Even though he's in a great position, and he's had, he's had a pretty decent history with her in regards to what our story says, he could possibly do this, but he knows his limits. That's something we don't do so well. He says, but hold up. There's somebody else legally that should be doing this. Sometimes we think, oh, because the person asked me, I have to do this, right? People like me who feel responsibility for everything, like, I'm going to get it done now. Sometimes someone else may be a better voice for the people that need help in our lives. Sometimes someone else may be a better voice than the people are helping you right now. We need to be discerning that, and we need to be sensitive to that. That love doesn't say, I can save you. Love says, I think I know how you can be saved. That's a very, very different thing. And so Boaz, even though he delights in this and wants to go this way, he has this devotion to the said love of God and says, I need to know my limits. So here it is, Mr. So-and-so. She's, uh, Naomi's selling a parcel of lamb. Will you redeem it? And now, uh, now Mr. So-and-so, he's what we literally, uh, in literature, we call a foil. He is a foil. He is a character that lets us know more about Boaz. We don't know much about this guy, but we do know more about Boaz from what this guy does. Orpah is this for Ruth. Orpah, when times get tough, she says, yeah, I'm going to bail and I'm going to go. So we don't need to throw her under the bus and say Orpah's really bad. But we do need to know that, what do we learn from Orpah? Ruth didn't take that route. Ruth stayed loyally. So we're going to learn that from Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so is offered a whole stash of, uh, of property and land and this great wealth. He's going to expand whatever his territory is, right? And so, naturally, like a person like you and I, oftentimes, sweet deals presented, and we say, yeah, I'll redeem it. I'll take that. That's what he says. So then, prudently, Boaz pulls out the guy's motives, and he says, oh, yeah, by the way, here's the purpose for doing this. It's not to grow your name. It's not to gain your reputation. Okay, if we put this into church culture, it's not to convert people and bring people in so that they grow the number of people in your seats. That's not what we're doing. He says, there is a different purpose for what you're doing when you grow your estate, when you grow your physical possessions, when you grow these things. He says, verse 5 gives us the, the purpose of this. He says, there are limits to this kind of love that you have. Verse 5, Boaz says, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth. And if you didn't know who she is, although he's already said everybody knows who she is, if you don't remember, Ruth is the Moabite, the pagan, you know, from the hillbilly country that, that we don't like. Uh, she's the widow of the dead. So you're going to get a Moabite widow as part of your acquisition. And here is your purpose in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. You are going to do this as an act of said love to redeem someone's name. The line of Elimelech is dead and gone and it will be no more if these people aren't redeemed. And he says, your purpose is not to gain your territory. 
Your purpose in your activity is not to do that, but to lift someone else and their legacy and their livelihood. That's self-sacrificial love. Is that this is what kind of love we need to have. And so what does the, uh, what does the uh, Mr. So-and-so say? He says, yeah, on second thought, I can't do that. Uh, I can't do that. Uh, and he even gives it out. He, I mean, he calls himself out. He says, I can't redeem it lest I impair my own inheritance. I've got a sweet stash of money, and the legal system is going to take that from me if I go this way. There's too much cost. He's counting his cost, and it's too much. How many times do you and I do that? We say, it would be great to help somebody out. I would love to I read the Bible and I say, oh, I want to help the widows and orphans. I want to help the left outs and this and that. And then you actually come face to face with one and you're on the phone with one or you, you meet one as you're walking around, uh, maybe in the grocery store or whatever. And there's that thought where you, you and I are like Mr. So-and-so and we're saying, the idea of doing that was great because I would have felt really good because Christians do that, right? We like help others, right? But not at this level, like this is going to be really inconvenient. This is going to cost money. I'm not actually sure if they're going to use my money for alcohol or for good things. I don't know if I want to pay that because we're going to, we're going to, we're going to develop a system of, of dependency, right? And, and we, so we can't really help pay some of the bills or this or that, or we can't help with this. And we really go to then all of this, my inheritance is going to be gone. My wealth is going to be gone. It's too costly. And we expose ourselves just like Mr. So-and-so when we, when we balk at that. And I am not preaching hypocritically here. I am awful at this. Most days, I'm more like Mr. So-and-so than I am like Boaz. Now, I want to turn the gear here to, to, to the next scene because I want to look at Boaz. Mr. So-and-so has showed us that that, that superficial Christianity is just not going to work. The superficial love of God that, that, that's really, really loving on Sunday morning and doesn't give a rip about each other uh, or remember names or, or, or situations or, or how to help each other uh, throughout the week, that, that's not real stuff. That's not, that's not what we're called to. Boaz has gone through this. He's deeply soaked in the word of God and his own life, and he's prepared in a way. He has built up a preparation to be devoted to people in a different way than Mr. So-and-so or Josh Casey or anyone else that you may know that just says, uh, too much, I'm out. Love knows its cost. It delights in it. It is devoted to it. In verse 7 through 10, Boaz redeems Ruth. But it's not first through marriage. See, we're going to get there in verse 13. They're going to get married. Spoiler alert, they get married. Um, But... Uh, but, but, but here we, we have this whole section in verses 7 through 10 showing that, that this redemption is a legal term, that the redemption is, is going to happen at a real structural level. Our culture highly promotes the idea that, uh, that the feeling of being in love is, is a savior, that if we, we feel in love with something, uh, something or someone, uh, then, then that can lift us from the mire of the mundane. It can, it can lift us out of a situation. We can feel things. Uh, we can escape from the reality. Or th- we could just live in that. And we pursue that and we chase it. If our marriage, if our relationship, if our, uh, if our work has, has, has lost the allure of that feeling, then oftentimes we, we think, uh, this, is, this is too much. I'm out. This isn't what I bargained for. The cost is too much. Well, we'll get to the feeling of love in verse 13, the fullness of love in verse 13. But first, we must be reminded that redemption is ultimately a legal act. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to go through this on the legal side because when we turn to Christ, we see that's exactly 
where Christ worked first for us is on the legal side of our love. Because redemption is a legal act, Boaz won't rest until Ruth is redeemed. And because Boaz understands the self-sacrificial cost of extending God's has said love, he comes to the table ready to prudently negotiate terms. Verse 7, I'll read this. Now was the custom in, the former, uh, in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. I'm glad they give that because I would never known what he's doing when he takes his sandal off. You should incorporate this into your common practices from now on, especially with neighbors who haven't read Ruth. It's super weird. Um, but it works in that day, apparently. Uh, so uh, when the Redeemer said... Buy for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and the people, You are witnesses this day, and I have bought the land uh, from the hand of Naomi and all that belong to Elimelech. Also, Ruth the Moabite, I have bought to be my wife for the purpose of perpetuating the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, from the gates of his native place. You are witnesses today. He just jumps on it. I mean, that's what I love about Boaz. He's doing something crazy. Uh, he, he is... Uh, he is he has, uh, he has got a lot of clout. He's a great businessman. Uh, he's, a, he's seen as a great man, a worthy man. And this guy is cream of the crop. He is owning it in, in, in Beth, uh, Bethlehem. And when he does this, this, this act, when he, when he goes here, he is taking some of his clout politically, legally, financially. He's taking some of that and he's saying, I'm going to be down here a notch now because I'm about to marry a, a widow Moabite pagan. I mean, she's not pagan because we obviously see that she has a greater understanding of God's love than you or I. But he's taken a risk on this. He is committed to this. And why does he jump on it so fast? Because unlike you and I, he has really thought through the Hesed love of God. He's thought through God's love and what it means for his life. And he's seen the trajectory of, of if, if I am actually going to embrace God's love, what is the cost? It's going to change my relationships. There are some that I'm going to have to lean into that I normally wouldn't. They're going to be uncomfortable. There are some that are really comfortable but not helpful that I'm going to have to go away from. He, he's realigned his relationships to, to help him understand that love, to help him uh, uh, give that love. The reapers didn't throw a whole riot when he said, come, you pagan widow, come over here and sit at the table with the reapers. They're not, they're not doing that because they understand something. He's teaching something there when he's, when he's, uh, when he's being a good employer. I showed, I showed a chart of, of 16, uh, 16 levels of, of society within this ancient Near Eastern culture that we're in. And, and Boaz is third, and he's inviting someone who's 16 out of 16, bottom of the barrel, to be his wife. He is increasing her to the highest level as a wife, to the highest level that a woman could be right there. And he's doing that as the sake of his name. He is ready. He's thought about this. It's going to take some time raising a kid. Spoiler alert, they have a kid. Uh, he's going to raise a kid. He's going to have a family. He's going to forsake his name being on the property. And now everyone's going to say, look at the land and the legacy of Elimelech. They're not going to speak about Boaz after he does this. The purpose is that not myself, but his. I mean, this is, this is the heart of what Christians should be doing. That's oftentimes we say, my church is fantastic. My faith is wonderful. You should be more like me and my church. You should listen to those songs that I listen to. 
You should, uh, and then even within, if you're listening to Christian songs, there are certain songs and certain artists. We go this way or that way, right? We have this like really super specific way of defining what our Christianity should be and how our love should be expressed. Ruth is just blowing all of that over and saying, if you're a person, you're welcomed into the family of God. Ruth has no business being in the family of God. And we're going to find out they reference a lady named Tamar. Has no business of being in the family of God. Naomi is cut off from this family of God through, through, uh, through famine, through widowhood. She's back in the family of God. Love knows its limits. Love knows its cost. Boaz is a man of, of, of men. He is what true biblical manhood should be. As I've been reading through this, uh, I, 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 Ruth this time, and, and framing up some of this stuff, this idea of love and, and marriage is just something that's just hitting me huge. Uh, I see a, a huge parallel to, to what Ruth is doing as, as it being an example of what a wife does in, in, uh, in Ephesians 5. I see Boaz being an example of what a husband does in Ephesians 5. Ruth, uh, Ephesians 5 says to us, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Ruth does this in a beautiful way. I think sometimes we think, submit to your husband. Oh, man, this is just weird. This is oppressive. This is, this is demeaning. This is weird. That's not what she's doing. He calls her the highest level. He calls her a worthy woman. He calls her this industrious woman that's getting it done. She goes and takes a risk and goes to the, the, to the most important man uh, at the threshing floor. And she says, marry me. I need to be redeemed. She's asking big, bold questions. This is submitting rightly to your husband. This is how the marriage uh, works. When you say, husband, here are my expectations. Here are my requirements. This is where the law is taking us. This is where the Bible moves us. She's not backing down. She's not passive. She's not quiet. She's not submissive in the way that we usually define it. She is putting herself at his mercy and saying, you got to go this way. You got to go this way. So go this way. Lead. Do this. And then we read in Ephesians 5, we read that, that, that Boaz is, is fulfilling the man's role in Ephesians 5. Uh, Ephesians 5, uh, what is it, 25. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Boaz doesn't have to give Ruth the time of day. Uh, he doesn't have to do any of this for them. He's fine just without them. Boaz, love your wife as Christ loved the church. He shows us this love of Christ, this self-sacrificial love of Christ. Being a man, according to Ephesians, according to Ruth, is not machismo. It's not micromanaging every detail of your family, nor is it passivity in family decisions. We are wired, men, we are wired to, to do this leadership. We are wired to, 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 uh, to cultivate relationships and lead in this kind of a way. We, we just are. And if we don't do that at home where we're rightly told to do that, if we don't do that in our, in our, uh, in our relationship with our wives, we, we will tend to, and maybe you're on this trajectory, we will tend to throw that leadership, that desire, that innate desire to do that. We'll throw that into other things. Maybe productively, we throw that into our career where we can have a voice there. We'll, we'll, we'll quiesce, we'll go quiet when it's time for home matters and we'll just kind of make home happen. And then we'll go really throw our effort into work or maybe on a really unfortunate growing side of it. We'll throw our work into, uh, into like video games. I mean, those are two cultures that really swell with guys who don't get this idea of how we're supposed to do this. The Bible is, is, lining, uh, is outlining this, this idea of God's love. And, and right here in Ruth, we're getting an example of what Paul is saying in Ephesians. 
it works in your marriage. These are the roles that are in your marriage. This is, this is not something that you have to do to be a Christian. This is how it works. And this is the right way to flesh this out as we live in our marriages, in our relationships. But the big part is that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. See, I, I'm careful to say that Boaz is Christ. Like, like, I think you can go there and say he does all these things that Christ does. But Christ is Christ. Christ is far beyond this. I, I want to take some of the stuff that Boaz is already doing here and, and, and show you that Christ is the point. Christ is our model. Christ is our example of this. Whether you're a woman or a man, Christ is the one giving us the point and the pattern of all of what Ruth is. So, like Boaz, Christ is an advocate. An advocate is one who pleads a legal case. Uh, Boaz says, uh, come up here, sit with, the, sit with the reapers. He's already slowly, subtly doing that. He's saying, hey, come, come. You, you don't have access to this food. Come up here. You're not supposed to be up here, but come up here. Eat with us. And now he says, I'll redeem her. I'm going to bring her up. A legal status. She now has a name. I'm going to give her some food. That's great. But I'm going to plead my case before the law that this be done. He's advocating for her. First John 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that he says it that way. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Though you are wicked, according to the law, you and I are done. What does the law say? The wages of sin is death. We all have a death sentence because of our sin. We just confess that we sin. That's why we confess we sin. To remember that it's not us who saves us, but Christ. Christ goes to the Father and says, my righteousness on them. See my righteousness on them. But he doesn't just say, make it up. He also takes that from us. Like Boaz, Christ secures the redemption. Christ does that through his blood. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It'll go on to to reference a, a common phrase that they used back then that says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Our wickedness, our sin, separates us from God. We are foreigners. We are exiles. We are estranged, kind of like Moabites in Bethlehem. We are distant from God. We are far from his presence because of our sin. And Christ goes before God and says, let's reconcile this. I'll take the punishment for their sin, and you give them the righteousness that you see me. That's beautiful. I don't know why he does that. Oh, I do. But I said love of God. He understands it. Because he loves us so incredibly much. And like Boaz, now as we move towards this marriage, towards this child, Christ makes possible sonship. He makes possible that we can become sons. Here it is. Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We receive adoption as sons. The real status of us before we come to Christ, before we express faith in Christ, is that we're separated. We're slaves. We we have nothing. We just have this life and that's it. But through faith, through the blood of Christ, we are redeemed. We are redeemed from uh, who, redeemed, who are under the law, we were redeemed and adopted as sons. That's the devotion. The legal side has been taken care of. We are adopted. That's a legal transaction. An adoption is a legal transaction, but an adoption spans that gap because he delights in that. You adopt because you want that kid. You, you adopt because you love that kid. He doesn't just adopt us and be like, hey, here are all my adopted kids. 
brings you in to this delight in the family of God. This is what Christ does. And we're going to see this joy played out in one expression here at the very end of this chapter. Ruth and Naomi get to experience the fulfillment of love through a son. They get to experience not simply the fulfillment to the son, but this son is the key for them becoming uh, members of God's family. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her, and, she, uh, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. You sh- he shall be a restorer of, his, of life he shall, and a nourisher of your old age. Your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more than, you, than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him the name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. He was the father of David. Ruth is married. Her status is lifted. She she bears a son. And the name of Elimelech is redeemed, not only now through marriage, but now there is a legacy here. The son will carry the name of Elimelech. The fullness of love is declared here. Because rather than, okay, Ruth gets married, and then we move on. Like, we're moving towards this marriage this whole time. This wedding is really what's on our minds. But then we get to the point of the marriage, and we say, there's a lot of love here. There's, there's wonderful love. They get married. Okay, now we're going to move to the kid. Like, why do we do that? Why do we do that shift? This whole book, I've been waiting for this cashing out on this glorious wedding, right? But then we move to this kid. And then not only is it this kid, but, but then he's born, and then the narrative shifts to the actual main character away from Ruth, And now everyone's saying, Naomi has a boy. What's happening here? Like, why didn't we just celebrate Ruth at the end? She's the title of the book, right? Why is she just shoveled off and we start looking at Obed and Naomi? Because Naomi begins the book. And Naomi ends the book. At the beginning of the book of Ruth, Naomi says, I went away full and God has brought me back empty. And now here at the end of the book, God has providentially worked. It's, it's as though uh, Naomi's story is kind of the bookends here. And, and there's something. She, she shows up a lot at the first chapter, a lot at the end of the last chapter. And, and, and she says, I've got a problem here. But then she doesn't solve this problem. She kind of goes in the background. Ruth is the one working at all of this. Ruth is working through all of this stuff. And then we find that redemption is there. Naomi starts with, I need redeemed. And she ends with, I've been redeemed. Or the people tell her she's been redeemed. Ruth is working her butt off for this redemption. Boaz is working his butt off for this redemption. But then we see this bigger level that the people are singing to her in the chorus. In the literature, the chorus are the people in the background that sing and give you the themes you need to be remembering for the whole story. They are singing that theme. And what do they sing? They say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day. Ah. If there's one thing that Naomi wants to, needs to hear, it's that. If there's one thing that you or I need to hear, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day. When times get difficult, when we have problems, when our faith seems boring, when there seems to be no point, when we start rejecting things and truths about God like Naomi did, this is terrible. How can there be a God? Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day. Whether you're in this bracket where you're just wondering And you kind of have to step back like Naomi did. And it's not your story right now. You just have to wait. Be encouraged and wait because blessed be the Lord. He has not left you this day. That's such encouragement. 
And whether you're the person who's down there helping someone in serious need, you're coaching them, you're counseling them, you're encouraging them, you're working through tough stuff with them and it's inconvenient and it's difficult and it's costly, blessed be the Lord. He's not left you this day. Those are words we need in any season of life. And we see it all come way back in a huge fulfillment, in a huge way for Naomi. Because he's not left you this day, and then the next three words, without a redeemer. He goes on to say he will restore your life. What happens here is something that happens to us when we have faith in Christ, when we have faith in that redeemer. So Obed is born... And the people are calling him the redeemer. So Boaz is a redeemer. Then this Mr. So-and-so is a redeemer. But now we're focused on this redeemer. And he's going to do a redemption in a very different way. He is going to bring about a name for Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth like they could never imagine. A son had been born to Naomi, they say, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the David. This is King David. So I'm going to just put the family tree together. Ruth just became the great-grandmother grand, uh, of King David. Okay, so there you go. If you didn't have that, put that in, because that's a real thing. Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. But it gets better. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Uh, Perez fathered Hezron, fathered Ram, fathered Abinadab, fathered Nashon, fathered Salmon, fathered Boaz, fathered Obed, fathered Jesse, Father David. So we get the whole thing there. The genealogies are not meant for it to be like super boring. They're not left for like our, our weird retired aunt and uncle who are just like digging up all that, you know, doing all the, the rubbings on the, the graves and all that. It's not for that. It's not, not just a genealogy thing for nerds. There's a theological thing going on here. Okay. In the bracket of, of 16 hierarchies, right, uh, uh, that we have, we have Ruth in, in chapter two is 16 of 16, bottom of the barrel. And it's real bad for her. No rights in society. Uh, Boaz is number three in the land. And we know that because uh, at the very top is the king. But it's the time of judges. There is no king. King David's coming, though. Man, we, end with no ki- or we start with no king and we end with a king. This is incredible. This is phenomenal. So, so this, this lady who was bottom of the barrel now is going to be great-grandmother of royalty. This is the trajectory of that. But that's not where I want to leave this because, because that's not where the Bible leaves this. In Matthew 1, we go even further. Matthew picks this up and he says, this is only two, one-third of the story. So you can check it. Uh, Matthew 1. The first third ends with David. And then Matthew says, I've lived a little longer. Let me make the connection. And he runs it down. You can look at it, you can look at it yourselves. I encourage you to. And he goes down. And this person fathered this person, fathered this person, fathered this person, fathered this person. The last one on the list is fathered Jesus Christ. Ruth is not simply the great-grandmother of King David. She is the great, 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 I don't even know how many, of Jesus Christ. She has been brought into the lineage of Jesus, the King of Kings. So yeah, we get a king. That restores our physical problem of no kings. But we get this King of Kings. I've not heard of more abundant love than this, except for what Christ, the King of Kings, does for us. Because what we just read in Galatians is that we don't have a story uh, that we have to look for this Redeemer. He's there. He's done all the work. He says, I'm here. I'm willing to redeem. He's saying the things that Boaz is saying. He's doing the things that Boaz is doing. Legally, 
You, you can become my sons and daughters. You can be in this family. Uh, relationally, I want you to be here. I call you my beloved children. Uh, the part that I left out in Galatians, it says, and we get the spirit that allows us to cry, Abba, Father, a very endearing term, Daddy, Father. There is a devotion and a delight that Christ wants you to be in his family. That is a big, big theme in Ruth. And we get that through the idea of receiving and extending his love. We can't truly extend this said love if we've not received it. We can't tell people the gospel or show this self-sacrificial life of love if we've not experienced that ourselves and received it. Christ, what we'll be celebrating here with the bread and the cup, Christ has laid his life down for us. That's how he redeemed us. Our sins separated us, and Christ said, come back. And the only way back is through my forgiving blood on the cross. I take up your curse, and I give you my righteousness. And because of that, you can come to the Father. Whatever you've done, whatever you you think you've done, however you view yourself, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I, I can't ever be loved by anyone, especially by a holy God. That stuff's not true. That's what Ruth is showing us. Ruth has no business being in the family of God. But because God's love is abounding, he draws her in. Naomi doesn't really want to be in there. She thinks God's turned and his presence is far away. She doesn't believe in a God who clings to her. But he does. And he shows that he's been thinking of her this whole time. So wherever you're at, Know that God's love is there. The life of God's people is an ongoing activity of receiving and extending the chesed love of God. Of receiving and extending the chesed love of God. So let's extend God's redemptive invitation to those around us. It's there. You are a sinner. Christ died for you. He pursues you. He wants you to be there with him. He wants to walk through this journey with you. I have a phrase, I'll end it here. I have a phrase that I, that I use often is that every conversation, every interaction is an excuse to Christ. There is a trajectory of, of redemption in everything we do. When someone talks to us, we should always be thinking, what part of God's love do they need to hear? What part of God's love do I need to show them and extend to them? When we're having difficulty of anger or fear or shame, What do I need to receive of God's love that I'm not allowing him to give me? If you've withheld love from others, it's time to do the uncomfortable task of asking for forgiveness. I'm sorry I've done it this way. I've been selfish. I've been wrong. And it's always helpful if you are told that to like actually say then I forgive you. That helps a lot. If there's someone that you have always just kind of thought it would be too costly, I really, I really urge you. This series has shown us that you, you've got to go. Invite, pursue that person. Take a step in that direction. The kingdom of God does not grow by new people coming into churches that were already going to church. The kingdom of God grows when lives are changed for Christ. And that is going to happen when we understand and receive God's love on his terms, and extend it on his terms. That we delight in it, that we are devoted to it. That we extend God's redemptive invitation. The story of Ruth is absolutely beautiful. 
Uh, the story of Ruth is so incredibly challenging. The story of Ruth is four or five pages that remind us that the gospel is for us every day, that we should be doing this every single day of our lives, that God's has said love is the norm for our lives. It's not something above and beyond, but rather it's something that we just do. So brothers and sisters, my prayer has been through this series and is always that we be a people who are known that have, uh, to have a strange love for other people. That we have this said love that we are welcoming, that we, that we move towards Christ in our conversations and in our actions, and that we stick with each other through thick and thin to the very end. Let's pray.